Welcome to Shiki Podcasts, conversations between scholars from around the world who examine childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with these episodes are available at our website, shcy.org. The episode you are listening to is from the years 2014 through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History, and Critique. Enjoy. Welcome to Childhood History and Critique. I'm Pat Ryan, and I'm talking to my colleague and friend, Shirley Swain, who is at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. Um, Shirley is a a historian who I met about uh, 16 years ago when we worked on a project called uh, H Childhood, which is uh, still going strong, and she's been a a board member for the Society of the History of Childhood and Youth, and she's published um, widely in journals, uh, the Women's History Review, Australian Feminist Studies, Australian Journal of Politics, American Indian Quarterly. She's published books on um, uh, child poverty and child rescue literature, uh, a lot of articles dealing with uh, child protection, and now she is working and has been for some time on adoption and law. Um, so, Shirley, thanks for uh, responding to my uh, call to have a conversation about um, child rescue uh, literature. Um, I guess my first my first question is how how would you situate child rescue discourse historically in terms of its origin and its features? It's a 19th century development primarily. You get hints of it earlier, but it's basically a product of the, on the one hand, the romanticization of childhood that gives children a particular place in the family, a place that poor children clearly don't have. But it's also about controlling childhood and controlling children in terms of their potential to be the future of the nation. So the, the key element of child rescue discourse is that it separates the child from its family in terms of its future and breaks or at least provides the basis on which the bond between father or parent and child can be broken in the greater interests of either the child or the nation. So that makes it really fundamental to the legal doctrine of the best interest of the child and really to the whole menu of modern social policy and the child-state relationship. Yes, that's where it all comes from in the end. The state did take responsibility for children earlier than that, but they were children who were completely devoid of, of breadwinners. At least in the British tradition, they take them as part of the vagrancy or the poor law legislation. They don't go out and actively seek them. Yeah. What child rescue involves is supposedly going out and actively seeking them and claiming a right to remove children from parents who aren't meeting the child's fundamental needs. You had to pick out either organizations or even representations, pieces of literature, really seemed particularly important in in 
firming up and creating this discursive thread and in, in, in creating a foundation for it, where would you go? The biggest one in the British tradition is Dr. Thomas Bernardo, who mm-hmm. was a superb self-publicist and an amazing organisation builder. And because he doesn't have denominational links, he has to be far more aggressive than the others who are doing the same thing. So he's there from the 1860s promulgating this message, uh, no child refused admission was his claim. It's perhaps not true, but anyway, that's what he claimed. And he produces quite quickly magazines, um, richly illustrated magazines, magazines for adults, magazines for children, um, and then he resells the best stories from them as little booklets which make lovely Sunday school gifts. So you can start to see the whole circle going round. So in terms of the child rescuers, he's the, the most prominent, although there are denominational leaders who are doing much the same thing and producing their magazines and producing their organisations as well. In terms of legislative change, though, the big organisation or linked organisations of the societies for the prevention of cruelty to children Mm-hmm. which begin in, in New York, as you know, and then skip over the Atlantic to England where they have their greatest success because they become a national society with direct links into the parliament and they're able to draft legislation. And then you see those organisations growing up in many of the colonial areas, including Australia, although Australia actually had child rescue induced legislation before the SPCC arrives. Mm-hmm. They are good at using terms like the Children's Charter, which you see popping up not only in England but in Tasmania, Little Island, State of Australia, using the same terms and the same, even the same name for the legislation. And I'm I'm thinking back, and if I, I I don't know that I I don't have anything in front of me, and I'm just working from memory. But I think in the United States, the uh, societies for the protection of uh, cruelty to children are are connected to society's protection of cruelty to uh, animals mm-hmm. and the humane societies uh, that's a name in in the United States and Canada that's used for both organizations from about the mid 19th century but the humane society continues to be used in terms of family investigation into the 20th century it, it does in some centres in Australia as well. Um, in Queensland, the northern state, it was called the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And then when it starts to hear about these campaigns around children, it just takes animals off and just says Society for the Prevention of Cruelty. Yes. But generally the SPCCs use the existence of humane societies to shame governments into legislating for children. They say that animals are better protected than children. Yes. And that the English ones clearly really established themselves as a powerful organisation. They become the organisation with the right to remove children from their families. So rather than the state, it's actually vested in the NSPCC. Um, when you think about the child-saving discourse and all you've learned about it, how does this inform the way that the child is is positioned in humanitarian reforms internationally and also in public policy um, today as you look around um, 
Australia or other parts of the world? On the positive side, those rights of the child to um, food, clothing, medical care and accommodation, um, they're pretty much instated in law right across the Western world. And the right of the state to punish parents who not only deprive their children of that or who, who treat them cruelly or abuse them emotionally or sexually. So that's all come into law and no one would like to see that roll back. On the negative side, though, what that breaking of the bond between the parent and child and the way in which um, the advocates use the, the poor child, uh, the pitiable child, as a way of attracting um, money to their cause meant that children became kind of commodified and parents became vilified. Mm-hmm. And see that being fought out today in, well, just two areas suggest themselves immediately. The first is the inter-country adoption market, where um, which plays on international aid. You know, if you're an international aid organisation after there's been a disaster, they will know that if they show a picture of a child with no adults around them, they'll get a lot more money than if they show a picture of a family because the child is supposedly innocent, the family is somehow culpable for not providing them with their basic needs, even in that situation. But the next bit of that then becomes, well, perhaps the child's best saved by suddenly being meeting a need in the rich countries of childless people or people who want to be nice, um, want to be benevolent in some way. And so then you get that, that unseemly thing we see, that after a disaster, the kind of baby seekers go in and try and remove children for adoption. So that's one side of it that I think is quite a negative flow on. The second one is the what we're seeing in England particularly now, and it's spreading to some Australian states. And it's also driven by the shortage of children for adoption. The idea that if a parent fails X number of times, and their children become dependent on the state, we should intervene early. So we're getting what's called rapid removal, um, where the order is taken out when the woman's pregnant, the order's taken out before the baby's born, and the baby's born, and in come the child protection authorities and take it away. Now, there probably are circumstances where that's the case, but you know, those of us who know the long-term history of adoption know that its problem always was that you could never pick which adoptions were going to work and which ones weren't. Yeah. And so you have guessing at the state, you're saying, okay, this mother's hopeless, um, we're going to have the child adopted, but you might actually be setting that child up for a miserable life and mum actually may turn her life around. Always been the dilemma of adoption, but with rapid removal, on the basis of the mother's fault, it opens up a space which we'll probably be apologising for in 30 years' time. And you're taking two huge risks on both decisions. I mean... You've got to be pretty darn confident in taking that child away from what is supposedly going to be a failed household, a failed mother, and then you're awfully confident that you know need that you know who to pick the parents to be. Yeah. And you know, both of those, that's a such an enormous exercise of state power, yet yet it's not always seen in its enormity. And there's a huge power imbalance because there's nobody speaking up for the mother, really. Mm-hmm. 
is this constant pressure to free babies for adoption from powerful people. And they control the discourse all too often. I'd, I'd like to also add, you made me think of so many things, but one thing I thought of in your first point when you said there's this, uh, eight, you have an aid agency and you have this picture and if they, uh, that the aid agency wants to present and if they can present the picture of the child separated from adults, then they will get more money than if they show the adults and the children together because that clouds the picture in terms of this polarity between innocence and guilt. And that seems like such an important and, and, and problematic phenomena for us. The example that immediately shot into my mind is that we have written down, you know, universal rights um, and agencies that are and certainly committed to, to making those rights material around things like water and food and, and health and, and other basic needs. And then in Detroit, Michigan, over the last four or five months, 17,000 people who couldn't pay their water bills have had their water shut off. There are whole areas of Detroit, Michigan where People can't get fresh water. And completely absent from the public uh, uh, message that's being put out by the water company and the politicians that are supporting it is that they are cutting off the water to people. That is to old people, to young people, to people in between. And there's a, a an attempt to position all those who rely on that water as being uh, guilty because they can't pay their bills. And the notion of the children that live there, they're completely absent. And so there's two sides of this. One, it's, there's that danger of making that separation. But as soon as you can play that game of separating children from adults, you also can decide when you're going to remember the reality that children and adults live together and when you're going to forget it. That's absolutely true. I, everything we know is that to help children, you help their families. Mm-hmm. But that's not a sympathetic cause. And there's this tendency to write off poor adults, say they've had all the chance they're just going to damage their children. Or even worse, they're going to bring up their children to be dependent like they are and not independent, autonomous people. Which is, I think, a key element of the child rescue literature and the way it interacted with the creation of modern social policy in the late 19th and early 20th century. Absolutely. But we know, of course, its outcome wasn't as guaranteed as they would like. And we have to apologise to those, well, in Australia at least, we've had national apologies to those children as well. Uh, You know, so many categories of families have been broken by state action in the in, in the name of the child. But almost all children would want to grow up with their own family and ways in which we could support families to do that would produce healthier children. You know, um, I think that uh, we're going to have to have another com- uh, conversation in the future and talk about uh, adoption because... I think that's what um, 
what you're working on now, and I can just hear as you situate the child rescue literature that uh, that that's what you're producing right now, and I have to read some of that material, and then we can have another talk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I really appreciate it, Shirley. And um, are you going to be in uh, Vancouver? Yep, I'll be there, so I'll see you then. All right, we'll, we'll see you in, in Vancouver in June uh, 2015 for uh, the SHI conference. Yep, you're terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pat. Take care.